0: Welcome to another episode of the Rabona Podcast. Thank you once again for joining us. I'm here again with Ryan Hun. Hi, Ryan. Hello. Michael De Silva, unfortunately, is indisposed. He's, back in the- <laughs> He's not indisposed, <laughs> isn't he? He's in the UK, so he can't join us. But he sends his kind regards. And this week, we're going to be discussing Derby Day, Delight and Despair. Some crucial games from around Europe, primarily in the Premier League. But Ryan, anything else we should be looking at?
1: Um, We are going to obviously cover yeah Arsenal-Spurs, Liverpool-Everton, Chelsea-Fulham. We're going to then talk a little bit about Southampton, who have just fired Mark Hughes. Yeah, Breaking news. Um, So we're going to touch a little bit on them. We're also going to touch on a couple of um, records, 100% starts to the season, which have now ended in uh,
0: Arsenal-Women and PSG. Right. And uh, a few other things as well. Uh, as such as the UEFA club competition. Yes. Shout uh, out to Michelle St. Paddy, the wonder, wonderful, wonderful name, Mash St. Paddy on Twitter. is his Twitter handle, at Mash St. Paddy, who's given us some great questions and great feedback um, during the first few months of Rabona. We're very grateful to him personally and also not just for listening, but for his input. So please feel encouraged all of you on social media to chip in with thoughts feedback because we really appreciate your support
1: yeah definitely i mean it's it'd be good to hear more from people who are listening because it lets us know that there's more people listening than you know our extended family
0: <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to chop that out no keep it in keep
1: no it in. no, no it, oh, just a quick uh, disclaimer before we get into the nitty-gritty moose's stomach is making crazy loud noises <laughs> because we didn't do pastries this week you actually mentioned this and we usually do pastries <laughs> Before we usually go full sub- Sunday supplement, but Monday supplement, and uh, he we didn't do any today, and
0: he is growling, noisy. Away. Yeah, <laughs> so if, if you hear if you hear some strange acoustics, that's not a black hole coming to swallow. Yeah, all the, the technical stuff is fine. Yeah. Um, it's just Moose's tummy. Yeah, those gremlins are actually my stomach. So yeah, <laughs> now that you've publicly shamed me, <laughs> let's get into <laughs> Derby Day, delight and despair. One of the reasons Ryan is so hoop is that his beloved Arsenal have defeated. Tottenham Hotspur by four goals to two. Exhilarating performance. Superb game of football. And Ryan, what does that mean for Arsenal and for Spurs?
1: I thought that was probably the best Premier League game of the season so far. Um, Right, Very, very intense from the first minute. Arsenal, notorious for not starting particularly well this season. Still yet to lead at um, at half-time in any Premier League game this season. Right, But the two games that they have started more brightly have been... Arguably, they're two tough. well, definitely they're two toughest games since the opening defeats to Chelsea and Manchester City, which were Liverpool at home and Spurs at home. And um, I thought Arsenal in the opening 10 minutes on um, on Sunday were brilliant and Spurs did not settle very well and I thought Arsenal deserved the lead. Spurs came back into it and were pretty good value I thought for a half-time lead actually. Right, right. But in the second half, I mean Emery made two really bold changes at half-time, took off Alex Iwobi and Henrik Mkhitaryan and brought on Aaron Ramsey and Alexander Lacazette and tactically I thought he handled the game extremely well. Really exploited Tottenham's formation where they were playing a kind of diamond midfield which gave Arsenal a lot of space wide and um, I clocked that actually both teams I think played three different systems throughout the game so it was not only just a uh, a brilliant kind of spectacle but also a really really
0: intense tactical battle. Well everyone battle. Was thinking that's the thing what I love yeah. about what I love about Pochettino and Emery is that they are coaches who are constantly I mean it's funny because tinkering was something that was you know in our kind of slight sort of neolithic British press tinkering was something that's criticized but I think the the greatest coaches of our day are tinkerers they're constantly trying to find new advantages.
1: Yeah definitely and I think stepping back from it I think the thing that was really really encouraging for me was that Arsenal matched Spurs on the things that Spurs have have had an advantage over Arsenal in the past few seasons in terms of tactical intensity right? and having a real bite about them you know Spurs have always been a, a bit of a tough well not always but especially since Pochettino have been there they've definitely been more physical than Arsenal
0: Well it was funny because I saw there was a moment when Vertonghen gets his second yellow card mm. and he, he actually gets the ball first but then leaves his foot on was it a Bamiyang? Lacazette. Lacazette, sorry. Um, he leaves his foot in. Mm. And it was fascinating because I thought to myself, that sums this up. The, the speed that Arsenal were pressing, the way they were closing down, it was just ferocious. And that kick was really just frustration. And you saw so much. Of that. I mean, Torreira's goal, for example, the way that Arsenal just poured forward. Mm. It was brutal. It was almost like, almost like a slight sort of relief when Arsenal did score to the pressure off Spurs. You know, they got the restart. And there's an incredible start, Deli Ali. Deli Ali, I think, only competed like, I mean, six passes the second half. Four of which were Four kickoffs kickoffs i mean unbelievable stat yeah it i shows mean it, how he was frozen out to an extent or think, isolated yeah i think the
1: first 10 minutes of the second half spurs looked good they had a couple of um, really good set piece opportunities very similar positions to where they got their first goal but after that i just think arsenal kind of blew them away a little bit spurs also though i think you know they they I think Pochettino's team selection was kind of understandable in one in one aspect. This was their third pretty intense game in a week. You know, they uh, played Chelsea last weekend, and then they had a pretty hard fought win against Inter midweek. But I thought resting Alderweireld really played into Arsenal's hands. Um, who's you know he's undoubtedly their best defender. And they've got Southampton at home this week, who have just sacked Mark Hughes. Right. So maybe that would have been the one to rest him for but then again Pochettino said after the game he has all these players in the squad who can play Um, but I think Arsenal really targeted Foyt and Batonga. I can't remember the exact percentage but I don't think a single Spurs defender had over 70% pass completion yesterday which shows how Arsenal harried them from the very beginning.
0: If someone had said to you six months ago you would destroy Spurs dismantle them, destroy whatever 4-2 in a derby and neither Özil nor Rams nor Ramsey will be involved as starters. You'd have been like, yeah, do you know what I mean? But the, the fact that, like, I mean, Ramsey was important, but the fact that the centre <laughs> of the centre of creative gravity has shifted away from those two players significantly is quite.
1: It's a lot more collective than now than it has been. You know, Arsenal really relied on either Alexis Sanchez to get him out of trouble or Mesut Özil to really pull strings or Aaron Ramsey's goals a few seasons ago. Now it seems a lot more collective. Right. But to be fair, Ramsey changed the game. Yeah, um, He came on at half-time score and con- contributed two assists. And that's actually another point that I want to make about Emery, is that he changed the system. He essentially played two up top with Ramsey behind. And instead, instead of having like a central striker, Lacazette and Aubameyang played quite wide, mm. which allowed Ramsey space through the middle. And it was just this really interesting little tweak that seemed to give Ramsey huge amount of space and he calls Spurs real damage We don't know the... who
0: to mark. That's the problem with that. Yeah. If you, if someone's breaking like that um I don't want to sort of use too many sort of false midfield or false striker <laughs> analogies but the late arriving run is something that actually Lampard did. He had Drogba the false 10. The false t- well I suppose it is in a sense like it's when you see Aubameyang I mean I, I would I would classify Aubameyang as actually a conventional traditional center forward. Yeah. Having said that when the movement is like that and you allow the breaking runner, it's something which Manchester United tried to do before with mm. um, Lukaku peeling away and Lingard coming through. Yeah. It's incredibly powerful because when that, when, you know, is one of the best late runners in yeah. European football. Yeah, definitely. But before I, we're getting to the tactics of it, but I want to sort of zoom out slightly mm-hmm. and talk about Emery and, and Wenger because um, I mentioned earlier um, the Twitter follow of ours, uh, Michelle, which you can find, uh, who can find at at Mash St. Paddy on Twitter. And he said, look, is there not a question that we've understated significantly the good state that Wenger left Arsenal in and the squad in? And actually Emery's doing a great job, but at the same time, do we have to give credit to Wenger for these foundations that he left in
1: place? 100%. Despite undoubtedly Arsenal's performances becoming questionable more regularly in the last few years, and they're dropping out of the top four and definitely needing a change, I don't think that Arsenal were in a position to facilitate that kind of managerial change two or three years ago. They didn't have the personnel in place above Wenger. And I mean, I don't know Arsene Wenger. and Not yet. We're working on it. One day. One day (laughs) we will be friends. But um, I've always had this kind of sneaking suspicion that he cared more about just his job as a manager there I think he kind of felt this real level of custodianship, which could sometimes from the outside seem a bit like he was kind of running it as like a dictatorship and, you know, he was the he was everything at the club. But, Are you calling him the Angela Merkel of North London football? <laughs> but what I mean by that is that he was one of the only people at that level of the club who was still there from Highbury. Right. I think that he knew now that maybe with the additions of... Ralph Sanje and, you know, people like Hosfami and um, Sven Mislintat and this, this team of people that were operating above him or right. the manager at the club, whereas he was always pretty much top dog, right. even though he wasn't running the club, he kind of was. He knew that now someone like Unai Emery could walk in and really have the tools to, to push that team on. And whatever people say about Arsene Wenger, I genuinely think that he just wants Arsenal to do well. I think he's very stubborn, but I don't think he's an idiot.
0: You know. right. With me, with Wenger, the sense I always had was, he saw the club going into a, a sort of decline on the field, and he just wanted to turn it around. And I think he was, unfortunately, out of ideas in terms of, not even out of ideas, I think that Wenger's ideas, put it this way. Do you know how like you'll have like, these conversations and there's times when like women get talked over, and a guy will say the same thing? And everyone would be like, wow, what a great idea. I think by the end of Wenger's tenure, ideas that he had were dismissed because he was Wenger. I'm not being funny, like in terms of like, you know, look at the players that he bought. He bought, you know, he brought in Aubameyang. He brought in brilliant players, mm. right? And so I almost wonder if Wenger by the end was being overlooked because he was Wenger, because he said a lot of very smart things about the European Super League and whatever. I wonder if the players in the dressing room stopped listening because it was like, well, we've just heard the same old thing. He can't motivate us anymore. And I just wonder if things got a bit stale. Yeah, I mean, does that, does that I sense? think like, that's definitely people it. People I mean, hating the messenger. Yeah. But the message was fundamentally sound. I mean, you've had a load of players in that squad who had not been coached
1: by anyone else in their professional career, right. really. Hector Bellerin, Alex Iwobi, mm. you know, and Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who had a loan spell at Ipswich. But, you know, still, these kind of players who maybe wouldn't respond to Wenger's notorious kind of like jazz approach where it's like, go and do your thing, guys. You're amazing. Right. And I think you've seen that in the improvement of people like Bellerin and Wobi, you know, coming in with someone with someone with a new idea who's going to point their eyes in a new direction. That's just a natural thing. I don't think many managers would experience anything different.
0: You know what here, I mean? Here's a wider thing as well about Emery's start at Arsenal, which has been very impressive. It just throws into sharp relief just how much of a circus it was to manage PSG at that time because Tuchel's, I think Tuchel's doing actually a really good job at PSG and what's interesting to me is Tuchel is not managing the same PSG that Emery was because Neymar is humbled, Mm -hmm. Mbappe's in the ascendancy, the team is better rounded, the midfield's looking better like he's dropped out uh, Marquinhos, he's brought in Marquinhos into midfield alongside Verratti and it's looking more solid. It's almost like Emery weathered that storm and very unfairly, I think Emery was regarded as Emery was regarded as negative and conservative. This is a guy that went four 0 up against mm. Barcelona in the Champions League. People forget that. This is the guy that won three three Europa Leagues with Sevilla in playing some astonishing football. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like this perception of Emery as defensive. Why? Because he mm. played bad against a couple of English teams. I mean, that
1: Sevilla side at but, the time, but really, that's was what a what it real. Is. It was a must watch.
0: But can I be brutal? Is it because Emery had a PSG team? that played badly against a couple of English teams and the perception was shaped from that. I wonder, because where else could it have come from?
1: The only real significant blip on his record was really at Spartak.
0: No one knows about Spartak, like in, 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 the, in the British press.
1: Yeah, uh, but uh, he did a fantastic job at Valencia. He did an amazing job at Sevilla and he did a pretty good job at PSG. I mean, the only thing he really messed up on was that first season when they didn't win the league? But that Monaco side was incredible.
0: He lost over two legs to Manchester City in very abject fashion, and that's why this is happening. Yeah. That's what it's, it's those two. I hate to be brutal, but everything else in Emery's career suggested he would be playing exciting attacking football and would ultimately be a success mm-hmm. in a team or in a club that had the actual structure, the responsible structure that wasn't just looking at soft power like, you know, a lot of Qatar's investments have been doing. Yeah. So I just feel like Emery has been vindicated. The club Arsenal, and I, I feel very passionate about this. I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I'm very passionate about football structures and managers getting their fair due and getting actually the acclaim they deserve for doing very good jobs in complex situations, as yeah. Emery did at PSG and as he's doing at Arsenal. I
1: think I think his appointment made a lot of sense. And I, you know, again, not wanting to blow my own trumpet, but I remember talking to Chris Taroni, used to do the Ars- Arsenal America podcast on Twitter, saying that I'm before the announcement, when there was a lot of noise about Arteta, and I said, I'm surprised that there's not more noise about Emery, actually. Because he was available. The perfect kind of profile and CV, if you like. For where Arsenal were, it was very similar to kind of when he took over Valencia. Right. You know, they weren't um, at the level that PSG were. Um, and I think that he's he's kind of proving that that appointment was was a very very good one I mean it's still early days in his reign you know we're not six we're six months in just but that felt like the first game where he fully arrived if you know what I mean I mean that's 19 unbeaten for Arsenal now but many of that have been against sides that they should beat which is still not to um like discredit that run but a lot of people can be like oh well you know you beat Fulham, or you've done this or you've done that but like beating Spurs in a derby in that fashion, because Arsenal have beaten Spurs many times. Right. It's a derby. It happens. Like, it was two 5-2s and stuff like that under Wenger's late reign. But I think it was just the, the style and the intensity and kind of out Spursing Spurs in a way. Yes. Um, in terms of like what Spurs are so good at. I mean, from a Spurs point of view, because it's been very Arsenal-focused so far, I don't think it's anything really to worry about. I think it's a derby. They're such uh, standalone fixtures. Three games in a week of that intensity, you know, Arsenal had a a long trip to the Ukraine in midweek, but they took, essentially, a youth side. right? I think Emery knew that, and which is why I think he made those changes at half-time, because he knew that, uh, bringing on Lacazette and Ramsey, two very hard runners against a a tiring Spurs defence, you know, I just think we're
0: in danger. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Spurs fans need to be careful of drawing the wrong conclusions from the defeat. I think think Arsenal fans do as well, to be honest. I think think there's a psychological issue there's a psychological issue with Spurs and this Derby fixture. I do think there is, unfortunately. I think just because, I mean, someone said it. There's, um, his Twitter handle is, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's at T-E-H-T-R-U-N-K, who's a great follower on Spurs. And he said, look, we are the younger brother treating them with too much deference. And I think there's an element of that. I think that has been a problem in these big Derby games where, and maybe you see it to an extent with Everton still, where there's a slight sense of recent history being so overwhelming in the dominant club's favour, that you kind of defer. And I think that that's something that Spurs maybe have to address. But I think the great issue with them is they've got to find their Torreira. Because Torreira, I think we've not really mentioned him properly. In terms of his intensity, this is a guy who I think had the highest number, or the highest numbers of ball recoveries in Serie A last year for Sampdoria. His stats were off the scale, Mm -hmm. goes to the World Cup, was superb in the 2-0 game. I mean, I talk about this game a lot. But France-Uruguay in the World Cup, France 2-Uruguay-0, That midfield battle, him and Bentancourt up against Pogba and Kante was outstanding. And he's just gone, not up and up because his performance level's been the same. What's incredible is his exposure's increased and he's kept playing the same style. And his finish was wonderful. This is a guy who can really do it all. He can hold a midfield, he can be the the surging runner, and he can also finish, he can start and finish the move.
1: I think he's probably been the signing of the season in the Premier League. That might be me being a little bit biased, being an in Arsenal fan. In terms of a
0: player that's catalyzed the change. I
1: think in terms of, if you look at everything, price was less than £30 million. I think it was in the, uh, I think it was £22 million initially. He's um, 21, 22 years old. I think he's 22. Kind of plucked, if you like. And that's it's a little bit disrespectful to Serie and Sampdoria, but it wasn't a kind of high profile signing where people are like, wow, yeah, we're getting Lucas Torreira. Everyone's like, ah, oh, okay, who is this guy? You know, for a lot of people won't watch Serie and a lot of people won't watch Sam. The kind of profile of Arsenal player that you would see them make in Wenger Peak, in a way. My
0: only critique of signing the season is you've got, I mean, Guendozi who's in the same midfield, who value for money. If we look at signing of the season, I think we've got Rashalison up there. We've got, obviously, um, I mean, the hipsters will say Gomez at Everton. I think that's not quite there. But I would say Richarlison at Everton, I think one of those two midfielders, Torreira or Guendozi, I would say, in terms of value for money, Um, But also I think Torreira, for me, I think he just edges it because the change he's encouraged in Arsenal style. I think Jorginho's got to be up there as well. I think he's, I think it's maybe Jorginho up there as well, or midfielders, I'm noticing. Yeah. But does that make sense to you? In terms of players that have literally come in and been absolutely game-changing, not just in terms of the price tag, but game-changing in terms of nobody thought at the start of the season, with all respect to Arsenal, they'd be playing this well or this cohesively this early. Nobody thought that Chelsea would be this good this early. And those two players have been absolutely integral to these transformations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the really encouraging thing is that he's dominant in right. a way. yeah. Without necessarily being eye-catchingly dominant, if that makes sense.
0: He's everywhere. I opened the front door today to record with you. I was expecting to find him, you know, taking yeah. out the laundry. You know, he's, yeah. uh, he's, he's everywhere.
1: Everywhere. But I I think that's three man-of-the-match...
0: Uh, awards in the last four Premier League games for him. Extraordinary.
1: Um, one thing before we move on actually that I want to touch on was the Spurs fan who decided to throw a banana skin at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Right. and the reason I wanted to touch on this was because I thought A. Aubameyang's reaction was amazing I don't know if you saw but he kind of looked down, they didn't show it on the TV but they showed the photo afterwards and actually you can see his reaction on the TV where he looks down at it and just stands there with his arms out as to, as to be like, what?
0: I love how he acknowledged it.
1: Yeah, he acknowledged it. He looked down and he was like, what? I think he got arrested, that guy. One thing I do want to say about it is that it's so easy, especially nowadays in, with football Twitter, to point score, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's such a shame that a club like Spurs has now got to deal with the backlash caused by some absolute dickhead yeah. who's doing something like that because yeah. you know spurs and spurs fans are on the end of some pretty horrific abuse themselves right. you know and um i don't know why I, what, what my point is specifically but i think it just felt that it was good to mention because you know i'm an arsenal fan yeah you know i've been kind of brought up to immensely dislike that football club but i only really dislike them when it's the north under derby and, it doesn't a, kind and, of rivalry. And, and it's not yeah. you know they're a, they're a <sighs> Spurs are a great football club. Yeah. And I would advise against Arsenal fans using that as a point scoring thing because it's not a Spurs it's not a Spurs thing.
0: I like can I say the 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 North London derby rivalry for, as as unbearable as Arsenal can be on Twitter. Oh, when Arsenal you, Twitter but, is
1: the worst. But can
0: I say this though? I feel like for all of that, I you know, all of that to and fro, it's quite a wholesome rivalry. Like as rivalries go, mm. I like it. I like these teams, I love watching them both. I love, I love the way that Spurs go out the game. I love the ways. It's always, you know, what I love about Spurs and Arsenal, as clubs and collectively, it's about more than the football. When you watch Spurs play, there's a Spurs way, mm-hmm. and that's been the way for you know before I was born. And there's always an- there's also an Arsenal way, and I really feel like this game at its best represented both teams to their very best in terms of footballing tradition. I think it's it's enormously to the players' credit and the managers' credit that you have these you know foreign managers and foreign players who have embodied, yeah, in, a, in, a, in yeah. a time when we're talking about people not understanding English culture, yeah. we have, look at the emblems of these clubs. We've got like, players in Spurs midfield, Spurs backline, who embody these very, you know, English clubs, English values, I think in a way that is quite, quite, quite inspiring.
1: Yeah, right. I think it's the best derby in the Premier League and it has been for a good few years. I agree. Um, in terms of how unpredictable it is, what the stakes are, yeah, especially since Spurs have been, consistently breaking into that top four it very rarely disappoints it's always a, a a good game and i think that's you know credit to to both teams but yeah awesome. we've kind of waxed very lyrical about no we so. should be.
0: but let's 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 some um, thoughts and prayers with spurs fans but moving moving forward to hey, everton that's that's a bit mean well 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 i think it's, it's just a game it's just a game but still thoughts and prayers <laughs> so everton <laughs> everton <laughs> liverpool everton and a traumatic defeat Oh. For, for Everton.
1: Do you know what? I was really worried that this game was going to be terrible and it didn't disappoint despite being nil-nil until the 96th minute.
0: This was a proper... It's a great game. It was a... It was, you know what I loved about it? It was like the intensity and the margins for error being so small as you up But the quality of football, mm. the quality of chance creation, that's the key to a derby. Like very often in derbies... It, you know, it, it it's people neutralise each other. But this was really, I mean, actually, to be honest, if Liverpool had finished better and Everton finished better... It
1: could have been like four all. Could have been. At one point, I was I thought, well, oh, Liverpool should be like three up. And then I was like, hang on a minute, Everton should be uh, should have had at least three.
0: The goal is in danger of overshadowing everything. But I want to get into just talking about Liverpool because they're only a couple of points back, which is remarkable, you know, considering how well City have started. And that's remarkable given how good City have been. Liverpool are funny because they seem to have... They've solidified. They're, they're, they're tougher, but they have lost a bit of the I don't know ruthlessness in attack. Mm. They've they've definitely um, sacrificed some of that free free wheeling almost. What do you call it? It's a free jazz style. The Venga, you know, Klopp is a blend of he's a blend of Venga and Guardiola, isn't he? He's evolved, I think, into something approaching Guardiola ball.
1: Yeah, but definitely. It's
0: still, but it's still distinctly Liverpool. But you know, that being said, the goal, the nature of the goal. I mean. it so those who haven't seen the goal. Um, Divock Origi scores in, six, in the sixth minute of stoppage time.
1: To be fair, sorry to cut in, but the amount of stuff that was doing the rounds after that, oh I goodness. would be very surprised if no one's not seen
0: that goal yet. Okay, right. So you know I mean, but the amazing thing about the goal is that he slices. I mean, Van Dyke slices the volley that leaves the goal so that he actually turns away in disgust. Yeah, Van
1: Dyke's already running back towards his goal in disgust his, with He's his like, hands yeah. on his head, being like. I've effed it basically in the last minute and I yeah yeah, I just I just it took me a while to figure out what was going on to be honest because it looked like it started curving back so I was like oh it must have gone out of play and then I don't really know. The ball
0: bounced twice on the crossbar. I don't really know what Pitford was doing. I but, don't want to be mean, but I don't really know what he was doing. He was trying to palm it over the bar, which makes total sense. But then he,
1: if he was palming it over the bar, he cupped his hands as if he was going to catch it. So he, instead of helping it, so he, had, he basically had his hands the wrong way around to palm it over the bar. Right. He had his hands scooped underneath it which is why it popped back out
0: but it's a one in ten thousand thing because if you think about it the first thing was the problem because once it once it bounces on the bar so the, f- the first mistake he made it was a negligible mistake right in uh, in, in, in 999 times out of a thousand when he makes contact with it onto the bar it bounces over yeah but it spun onto the bar again and then bounced down mm-hmm. like how often the odds for the ball to bounce on the crossbar and then bounce again and then to drop
2: for was, the strikers.
0: Uh, can I say credit wild. to Origi because how many strikers would have followed up in yeah. that situation? And the fact that it dropped right to him is because he was right under the bar of the title because he followed that. Most strikers wouldn't have followed that ball in. Yeah. They wouldn't have. They would have just let it like, okay, he's tipped over. But Origi gambled and he's, he's interesting because in terms of his narrative arc, he is a player who has been out on loan, looked very good at the World Cup. I think that was the World Cup or the Euros he was at where he first started starring. Euros, I think. The Euros looked very good. Went went on loan, seemed as if his career was turning away at Liverpool, but has come back with a vengeance. And when he scored a winner at Derby, goodness knows what to do for his confidence. And now he is an extra striker that Liverpool have and come off the bench and be decisive.
1: I kind of really felt for Everton. It was such a weird goal. It was kind of like, ah, I think you saw it with um, Silva's reaction afterwards when he was just a bit like, what the hell? Nah, it kind of happens. I mean, he kind of like laughed or giggled about it, didn't they? And then they were like having this big old deep chat. But, um, Klopp on the pitch. That was amazing. amazing. Like, sorry to kind of go football banter account, but yeah, I was all in on uh, Klopp, just pegging it on the pitch and giving Alisson a hug. After that goal where you're like, what is happening? And then all of a sudden
0: Klopp's on the pitch and you're like, what the hell? Like- there were some really beautiful Derby moments, actually. There was, there was that. That was an iconic moment. There was Torreira's knee slide and topless celebration after scoring. And there was Gwendozi after the game. When, out the, when car. the cars drove and hang out the car window and, and I was like, you know what, that's football. That could have mm. been like a Lazio Roma.
1: Eric Dyer Shush celebration as well, which is now the got memed oh kind of goodness. thing.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean it's so interesting watching people get caught up in the emotion of the derby. And you know, for Clock to run on the pitch like that, yes, that's because it was such a huge victory, but it's mm. also the unique atmosphere that the derby creates. And yeah. I I you know, I want to just say I think that on the whole Clubs did themselves immense credit. Yeah, definitely. Weekend. And yeah. I think we have to celebrate that because sometimes, you know, it's easy to be like all doom and gloom and we're not always like that, but it's important to celebrate these things when they happen. They're really great.
1: Yeah, definitely. And actually leading on to the third derby in the Premier League, Chelsea Fulham, which was closer than you would probably expect going I mean, into the game. And it should, have, be, right, and right, it should right. have been closer actually. Yeah. Um, Chelsea winning 2-0, going 1-0 up quite early with Pedro. Fulham could have... Uh, could have really got back into that and probably should have
0: should have had a couple, I think. But very positive for them. They beat Southampton. It was a good win for them.
1: Yeah, and I don't and think they would have expected anything no. out of that game apart from a performance. And I think they Raniere gave a is already making a difference, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. That just shows that, um, you know, he's not one-hit wonder.
0: Yeah, but he's not spent four. The great Ranieri, I mean, when he won that league title, for me, it was wonderful. It was almost like... You know, in the NFL, they had John Elway winning the Super Bowl right at the end of his storied career. Mm. And everyone knew that Elway was one of the greats, but it was almost like they'd always see these people going, oh, no, he's not a great because he hasn't won. And Ranieri winning with Leicester, just really when he ascended you know, to the mountaintop, it was like, yeah, this guy's just a brilliant coach. Mm. He's just a very good coach. And if anyone is right to bring Fulham out of that, it's a guy who's got the perfect mix of carrot and stick.
1: Yeah, definitely. And he seems like uh, someone who... You know, when things are getting a little bit tough or morale is low or something, who can really lift a a group of players? And um, you kind of see that. I think Fulham have been much better in the last couple of games. And, you know, against Chelsea, in the kind of form they were in a few weeks ago, you'd expect them to ship like four or five. Right. And, you know, they were nowhere near as open. And um, I think it's signs are looking good for Fulham.
0: Absolutely. What they want to do is. Well, on the derby theme maybe just jump over to South America very briefly yes because the latest news on River Boca Libertadores second lake is that River have refused to play in Madrid which is very interesting so what's going to happen then this is going to be like almost the sort of never ending story isn't it sort of because uh, it's due to it's due to take place this Saturday right the 9th that's the talk I mean yeah so Saturday night is scheduled but At the Bernabeu River, River aren't keen on that which I River have can I just say River have conducted themselves I think really really well you mentioned on the last podcast how they'd come out and said look the game shouldn't go ahead they've really done things the right way, coming out and saying this and saying we don't want to play in in madrid i respect that because i feel there's what you're telling us in the whole of south america we can't find a venue for this in the whole of argentina we can't find a venue for this you know i think they're right to sort of say look this isn't just about the rivalry this is about you know the commercialization of football this isn't this isn't a travelling fair. This isn't uh this isn't the Harlem Globetrotters. Trotters.
1: Yeah, and also they've lost their home leg of the biggest game right. for years. Having
0: played superbly in the first leg. Exactly.
1: And, and kept, you know, back. basically it's 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 level going yeah. into the second leg. I don't really know where this is going, this situation. I mean it's it's changing constantly, day by day. You know, I had a chat early last week with Brenda Elsie about the
0: Copla Libertadores. We'll hear from her later.
1: Yeah, we're gonna include a little bit of that conversation, basically. We had a long chat, but so much has happened since that, you know, it's kind of um, proved some of it a little bit dated. So we're going to include some stuff that Brenda touched on, a little bit more of the aspects outside of the football and wider kind of South American factors. But yeah, we recorded that before we knew where the second leg was going to take place. And at the time, a lot of the noises were coming out, it was going to be in Doha. Mm. And that just seemed like a, a terrible decision, but one you can just kind of understand going ahead it's like oh right you know kind of loads of money here you go do it in Doha get it done it's gonna be you know very kind of sterile and actually when the when the announcement got made that it was going to be at the Bow, I was kind of like huh actually that's I don't agree with it in a way because I don't think that you should take that game out of South America because right. it's a South American competition right and it's a massive game
0: if you're going to move it somewhere American <laughs> Why not? I mean, do you know what? Actually, you know what? Can, we, can like, be brutal. can be can be radical here. Do it in the American R, and give them, give the fans, like, do an allocation, yeah, do an, allo- allocate to River and Boca, and say, do you know what? This nonsense about not having two sets of fans in the same stadium. Let's show we can do it. Let's allocate a third of the tickets neutrally and half each to River and Boca, and let's just do this thing. Yeah. No, no, really. Let's. We're adults. So I feel like almost there's a great point that um that Brenda makes in the segment we're going to use about how this game has been marketed and she makes a great point about how this game has been marketed to the kind of more, you know, rabid section of fans or Mm. the machismo. This is an opportunity to say, look, this is a showcase for South American football. Let's take the high road. Let's make a weekend of it in Rio, because actually look, 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 if there was an opportunity for a real sort of, if there was an opportunity for football in crisis in 2014. It was when Argentina fans descended upon Rio for the World Cup final and everybody had behaved impeccably. 100,000-odd Argentina fans travelled to Rio for the World Cup and there was scarcely a problem. And you were there. So they, they, yeah, I was there. I was there. So I, I, I saw it up, up close and I can say, look, I just think it would be a fantastic opportunity for South American football to say, you know what? Didn't work out there for whatever reason. Let's do it in the maracanã and be done with it.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, by the time this goes up,
0: it's probably the situation changed, probably again, changed yeah. again by that so. time mark hughes will be playing for river plate so you know oh. yeah sorry sorry that and was a hot take, take should we take a quick break let's take a quick break
1: and we're back we're back that was so radio and <laughs> we're back um one thing i wanted to touch on that i forgot to mention actually when we were talking about the premier league stuff was the armbands, the captain's armbands this weekend, proudly supporting the Stonewall. Um, I can't, is it a, it's a, it's a campaign, isn't it, that the Premier League do every weekend? I suppose that's the right word for it. But how good did it look for Premier League captains to not have that horrible, way-too-narrow Premier League captain's armband on?
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: this is Ryan's Corner, where I'm going to rant about something. I really, really want the Premier League to get rid of the standardised captain's armband. I'm not sure if anyone actually cares about this or whether it's just me on my own, but I would really love clubs to have their own personalised captain's armbands. I mean, you can start with the Premier League official typeface and maybe the, the logo on it.
0: Do you not think that's something? I just think that's going to come like football boots where football boots were once black and now they're all kinds of colours and they become just another marketing opportunity. So I like the idea. I also know where it's going to go
1: like well like i really like for example like you know when you have when you have our clasico yeah and you have real have their captain's armband and you have barca usually have the the catalan mm. stripes or when barca play in the champions league and they have the fluorescent green champions league captain's armbands yeah. over the top of the catalan ones Ugh, this is just maybe just me being a little pet no, peeve uh, w- but i really enjoyed seeing the the rainbow on the armband for a start. It's and I super think,
0: cool. I mean, the rainbow is
1: just a super It's cool, amazing. So. It's yeah. like St. Pauli's ca- uh captain's armband is, uh, it's, it's a skull and crossbones. Oh yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, and brilliant. it would just be really good to see like, you know, for example, like if Spurs had like their, their badge on there and you know, or whatever, or like Arsenal had just like a cannon on there and, or United had like Fred, Fred the Red. You know what I mean? Well, it's super cool. It's distinctive. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's identity. S- should we, should we start? I might do a petition to the Premier League. You know change.org. The
0: only reason I feel bad about it is it's going to become a new piece of merchandise. They're going to start selling. Customised. Yeah, but I, do you know what? I'm all
1: like I'm that? all right with it. Um, um, right. Let's move on to more football.
0: Well, yeah, but that, that is football. I mean, look, let's look, we, we celebrate football culture and I love, I love that. I do love that concept. And also as a Stonewall, as a Stonewall alumnus, I played for Stonewall for three years. I'm very proud yep. of the institution that club has become. I think they're tremendously important.
1: I'm going to give you a little plug here. Well, plug to you, plug to our friends at Caricom. We've, Tweeted about it last week, and me and Musa and Michael have also tweeted about it. But Musa's wrote a really good piece for the second issue of Caricom, um, which is a really really good football magazine um, about how football and Black British cult- culture intersect. That's, so that's right, yeah. They've got a Kickstarter for their second issue, so if you go to the Rabona Twitter, you'll see, or Musa or mine, you'll see the, the
0: link there. And yeah, Caricom spelled C A R I C O M, and I've written a piece about my debut for Stamford Football Club. Many years ago.
1: Yeah, honestly, Caracom issue one was amazing. Callum Um,
0: Jacobs, shout out. Yeah, shout out to Callum. As regular listeners of this podcast will know, including my mum, hi mum, shout out (laughs) mum. We have the Sancho Corner, Jadon Sancho and his incredible exploits at Dortmund. They won 2-0 against Freiburg. He was instrumental again. Brilliant in the lead up to, I think, the second uh, goal and just basically bewildering them all night. And he's been tremendous, hasn't he, all year. Do
1: you know what it reminded me of, that little bit, where he did the... uh... How many guys was it? He kind of... three. It was like, uh, you know, in like cartoons where all of a sudden someone will just like, like Tasmanian Devil or something yes. like that. And just
0: like... <laughs> and then
1: these guys were like, whoa. You and the know, dust like cloud the, is there. And he disappeared. Yeah. And like it. the lines and the kind of like the things going around their head. God, he's amazing.
0: I mean, the Tasmanian Devil, that's actually a brilliant marketing. I mean, yeah. If they ever like Nike or <laughs> Adidas, incorporate that into their marketing, they'll go nuclear. But uh, he's extraordinary.
1: Yeah. He's... I mean, what more can we say? I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because Michael's not here.
0: <laughs> I must say, though, what I say about very quickly on the German league, good win for Bayern against Bremen and a good win for Leipzig over Gladbach and really fascinating that Dortmund are managing to keep a re- slightly resurgent Bayern at bay. Because Bayern are a bit resurgent, aren't they? Kovac is working things out. Yeah. But Dortmund is showing they are the real deal this year.
1: And also, it's worth pointing out, I am Robin announced that it will be his last season at Bayern. Well, big transition. So seemingly been there forever. and
0: um, It's a symbolic thing, isn't it? Because I think that is
1: quite symbolic. And I do wonder whether there's been some conversations behind the scenes about they need to really kick on now, because they're still very much in the shadow of Ribbery and Robin and a couple of the old guard. I think now is a really good opportunity for Bayern to, to reset a little bit and change tack.
0: Aaron Ramsey is available.
1: Well, there's lots of rumours that will be there. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll... Do, I wanted to kind of touch on Ramsey a little bit more, but I think we'll maybe do that another time because sure we also thing.
0: spoke a lot about Arsenal. Southampton, Southampton. Mark Hughes is gone.
1: Mark Hughes is gone, which... Fair enough, really. A point at home to Man United is enough to get a man sacked now.
0: Struggling mid-table size. I'm so sorry. Don't don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. Listen, listeners to this podcast will know by now that I see Mourinho's tenure at Manchester United a little like I see the seasons of The Walking Dead there was great excitement when the production started. Everyone was really hyped about it. The cast of characters was thrilling, but everyone now is just wondering when it's going to end, if it will ever end. So i I really feel like you know I don't, I don't want to compare his reign to the zombie apocalypse, but it does have. See, I was going to say it's
1: more like Lost because it's kind of like the ending
0: that pleases no one,
1: and you kind of just knew it from season two but it went on nine seasons or whatever Was it says seven. oh wow
0: Lost oh my goodness and it's such an appropriate name as well <laughs> okay so it's the Venn diagram of Lost and The Walking Dead yeah
1: um, I'm in the process of writing a thing about Southampton at the moment because I think it's very easy obviously Southampton fans will have noticed this because they follow their club week in week out but I think it's quite, it's been quite um, easily overlooked from a lot of us non-Southampton fans actually how much trouble they're in for a side that came up and were doing genuinely brilliant things, after their first season when they came up and they, they hired Pochettino half, well, a few months into that first season back in the Premier League, they finished 14th that year. Last season was the first season since then they finished in the bottom half of the Premier League. Right. And they're in the relegation zone and they have had a lot of structural changes at the club, ownership changes, uh, director of football changes, um, chief scout, I think, went to Spurs with Pochettino. Les Reed recently left the club which was one of the last pieces if you like at operational level from the structure they had when they came back into the Premier League. They're in big trouble right? and I think they had to do something soon about Mark Hughes. I think he was a strange appointment in the first place. There's talk about Ralph Hasenhuttle coming in which I think personally is exactly the kind of appointment that you would expect from Southampton maybe when
0: Ronald Koeman left. He was the Red Bull Leipzig
1: man. RB Leipzig. And before that, he was at Ingolstadt. Got Ingolstadt back into the uh, Bundesliga after taking over when they were very near the bottom of Bundesliga. It was Or like to Bundesliga. Second Bundesliga, I think is the technical term. Very highly rated manager. Was linked with Arsenal as a potential successor to Arsene Wenger. I think he'd be a brilliant appointment at Southampton. I think it'd be a really good move for him. Uh, Michael texted me about this actually I said is there anything you want to mention on the podcast I might talk about Hasenholt, and, and he said uh yeah obviously he's very attack minded flowing football and could liberate a lot of those players there thinking the likes of Redmond he thinks it'd be a good appointment as well so for Southampton's sake I really really hope he is the guy they get in right I really hope they don't go for another Hughes type appointment
0: do you know what I love about when Michael sends texts you can hear Michael's voice in the text, yeah, like the kind of the same considered analysis, and yeah, it's, sorry, just I'm nostalgic. Whenever Michael's missing, I, I miss him so much. Oh, he's, um he's staring at his empty chair, it's very sad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thoughts and prayers, pour some out. Um,
1: he's busy uh, expanding the Rabona commercial empire,
0: amazing human being that he is. We love you, Michael, aka the, the dearly he's Departed. He's just in London, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, in relation to what Michael said about this appointment, this potential appointment, what I love about it is it's visionary. And Southampton are, I think, a visionary club, and I'm just—they've always tried to be like that. You look at the old, you know, the old footage, the old games they used to play back in the Keegan days. They've always been a club that have tried to play the game a certain way with a certain style, a collective style. And I'm just glad that this potential appointment, rumored appointment, mm-hmm. is drawing them back in that direction.
1: They led by absolute example when they came back in the Premier League. I thought, and if you look at the players who have gone on from that, that those two or three years when they first came back in the Premier League. Imagine if all those players were still at Southampton. Unbelievable. right? Probably win the league. You
0: yeah. know what I mean? It's like,
1: <laughs> if Poch was still there, for yeah, example. absolutely. Are all those players still there with Poch, you know. Anyway.
0: But one, one last thing I want to sort of bring up before you get into roundup of some of the really exciting action from the women's uh, football is the Europa League, um, mm-hmm. UEFA, and this is a visionary, I think, step from them potentially which would head off the potential creation of European Super League. UEFA proposed a third European competition Mm-hmm involving, I think, 30-odd 30 teams, 32 teams.
1: Yeah, I think they're going to downsize the, uh, hopefully both competitions, but definitely the Europa League.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think that that's impressive or interesting. It's an impressive step, I think, UEFA, because it, I think it's an attempt to head off the Super League at the pass, but it's, it's plans they developed already before. And I think the idea is to kind of democratise European football, give more clubs a bit of a say, and actually might have the effect of boosting some of those... TV revenues, commercial revenues, maybe?
1: Yeah. um, I've struggled to get um, excited about this, if I'm being honest, because I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about kind of the changing climate of football. And it was a little bit to do with, um, you know, all the kind of football league stuff, but also this kind of third competition in the Super League kind of aspect. Yeah, And I just don't have any confidence that UEFA are going to handle this in the right way. Okay, And I really want to be proved wrong. But I I think that they have a massive opportunity with this third competition to shift the needle back again into kind of not I don't want to say saving, that's massively extreme, but like you say, democratising European football again. Try and bring the the floor up as opposed to, you know, make the ceiling even higher. Okay. Yeah. Um the the initial kind of news came out, it's got a working title of Europa League Two, which has killed any potential enthusiasm
0: that I had. For. Sounds like a Radiohead EP, doesn't it? <laughs> UEL, UEL2, you know, <laughs> or the an co-
1: asteroid. The conceptual album from UEFA, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the space Ambient. opera, the UEFA space opera. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think
0: it's all kind of speculative at the moment, isn't it? Because yeah. we just don't know. We don't. What we do know for a fact is that the winning streaks of two great clubs have ended.
1: Yeah, two uh, 100% starts of the season ended this weekend. PSG drew to Bordeaux in League 1, which means um, they have dropped points for the first time in the league this season. Right. Uh, they drew 2-2. But, um, you know, again, kind of hard game against uh, Liverpool. Very tough game. A, def-
0: a defining game as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that it was a big win for them in midweek. And, you know, I mean, they're still yet to lose a game. In Liga, that's the first draw of the season. So I think they're going to be They'll fine. Be okay. right, I'm not right. sure if it's really derailed their title challenge yet. Yeah. And um, Arsenal Women lost to Manchester City two nil in the Women's Super League, Shoot, which so. was the f- big result for City, who were chasing Arsenal. Arsenal have had an incredible start to the season. That's the first game that Arsenal haven't won or scored in this season. Wow! Which gives you a you know a little insight into how well they were doing. They you know, destroyed last season's champions, uh, Chelsea,
0: early on in the season. interesting to see City coming up on the third rail a bit like they did four or five years ago in the, in the, men's, um, the men's competition. Do you see them being a threat for the foreseeable future? Oh, Russia? for
1: sure, yeah. I mean, they, they kind of um, I think city's development and emergence, if you like, in the women's Super League kick-started the, the full professionalization. Right. Is, is that the yeah, way? yeah, that, the, that, 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 works, yeah. Um, that works. Of the Women's Super League and the Women's Champions uh, Championship, um, it's now mandatory to be professional to have a side in there, which right. it wasn't um, just a few years ago. There's a really good piece that Tim Stillman wrote for uh, T- Tim Stillman, sorry, wrote for Blog News. Um, he interviewed Danielle van der Donk, the Netherlands international, player for Arsenal. Yeah, 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 She gave a really good insight into kind of what their day to day is like, and it's you know how professional it is, and how similar to the men's it is now, and it's. It's really good that 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 level of investment is starting to happen a little bit more widely. And it's still not as much investment as you would like. And obviously there's still a long way to go. But I think the Women's Super League and the Women's Championship this season has been, there just seems to be a lot more enthusiasm and a lot more coverage around it. And, you know, major newspapers have dedicated women's football writers now, which I think is really good. And you've got the World Cup coming next year, which I think is going to be Great, we're hoping to go yep, to absolutely. France. Yeah, hoping, yeah. by the time this goes out, I think the host nation for the uh, Women's Euros in twenty twenty one will have been announced. Hopefully, it'll be England. Right, and um, yeah, like really encouraging. I think. Um, on that note, quick shout for Spain, who won the Women's. Uh, under seventeens World Championship at the weekend. And New Zealand came third, which I thought was good. They beat Canada in the in the third place game. Absolutely which awesome. Brilliant.
0: Good news for Canada in relation to looking ahead to the World
1: Cup. Definitely. And for Spain as well. Yeah. I mean, if you think next World Cup is going to be a little bit too soon, but for that Euros in twenty twenty one, a lot of those players are going to be in that team. The one the best thing about it was if you get to check it, it was like uh, when Infantino was presented with a trophy <laughs> and they were just kind of like grabbing it off and he was like, get out of the way, just give us the trophy. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, go on. Um, Football
0: wrestling for its soul.
1: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, okay, so let's dive into this um, snippet of the interview that I did with Brenda Elsie last week, uh, talking about the little bit of a wider implications from the Copa Libertadores stuff. I'm delighted to welcome to the Rabona podcast, Brenda Elsie. Brenda, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Before we start, Brenda, I was wondering, would you maybe be able to introduce yourself and give people a little bit more of an idea of what you do?
2: Well, most of what I do is professoring of history of Latin America at Hofstra University, but I'm also a co-host of the sport and feminist podcast, Burn It All Down. And um, let's see, I write extensively on soccer, football in Latin America, especially gender and class issues. So I have a new book coming out called Football Lera with Josh natal a uh, history of women in sport in Latin America this year from University of Texas Press.
1: Amazing. Um, so I guess to start, I thought it would be good to get your take on the, the main story, the Copa Libertadores <laughs> final or the, fi- the second leg that never was. Um, yeah,
2: and maybe never will be.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, this is involving two of Buenos Aires's, well, the two biggest clubs in Buenos Aires. How has this been um, received or commented on outside of Buenos Aires or even outside of Argentina in South America?
2: So I was in Argentina mm. until the game that never was, never was. And I was in Buenos Aires. And ironically, I was at a meeting that has to do with trying to get together women, women's football and people who study activists uh practitioners of women's football and we were scheduled to watch the match together when we saw what had happened with the river fans throwing the rocks you know it's it's pretty i think there's a lot of hand wringing a lot of disappointment uh there are a lot of fans of both river and boca well beyond argentina and i think they were really disappointed of course, the first thing is to blame, just as the as the media directs people to, and just as Comibal directs people to. There's a lot of just blaming Argentine disorganization. You know that there's something inherently uh, disorganized and and not modern, unmodern about Argentina, which is just is just really, I think, a racialized caricature. And yeah. I don't I don't think it's Fair, so I think it's it it's too it's a bridge too far to say that it's something inherent to argentine disorganization um and but I do think it has a lot to do with a foot with a football culture and this this isn't just top down this is a shared football culture which its violence stems also from a machismo that has excluded and been violent toward women mm-hmm. both women players women in stands women in the stadiums every week and women within the clubs yeah and a real reticence to change that and i think it it dovetails with marketing and the idea that somehow we can market this to a rabid a rabid male fan mm-hmm. and a resistance to changing the idea that Argentine women and a different kind of Argentine male fan and non binary and anyone LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. fan in Argentina that loves football just as much and may be able to model a different way to consume and practice it.
1: One final question before you go. I mean, in your opinion, what do you think this means? I know this is a big question, but what do you think this means for the future of, I suppose, not necessarily South American football, but maybe. Argentine football or the Libertadores as a competition do you think that I, I get the impression from being very far away that this is by no means the end of what we're going to hear about this
2: <laughs> no I don't think first of all the rumors will be for years
1: yeah you I know, was kind of joking they, that you know I can't wait for the 30 for 30
2: <laughs> on, on this. this final, it's you know? it's going to be like, uh, I mean, because you already hear things like, well, you know, River maybe tried to um, do X or Boca was trying to make River look bad. And so they rerouted the buses or the president has a relationship to X, Y, and Z. I think there's a general feeling of disgust In Argentina, and I don't think it's towards the the fans. I think that the frustration is with the authorities, and I think that's well-placed. I find it surprising that people outside of Argentina don't seem to want to trust people inside of Argentina. (laughs) They simply don't seem to be listening to Argentine journalists and analysts and organizers, people who organize fan groups. You know, they're they're really civic leaders who are saying, you know, we're disgusted with the way in which we're not getting information and this hasn't been transparent. So two things could happen. Either the structure of Argentine football stays the same. And it becomes more neoliberal and it tries to be the Champions League. And I think ultimately that is not a good model for the vibrancy of the game mm-hmm. in Latin America and its importance in social life. Or you're going to see some forced changes because people will either be fighting at the level of the federation and come ball or they'll check out and, and organize independently. So you'll see a kind of opt out. So if there's change, you'll see, a, I think, a more vibrant opt-in on the part of a lot of people. If there's not, I think there's a lot of fans who are just disgusted with the way in which River, Boca, Afa, Colmeball, all the way up to Infantino, will just sort of reject football as it is. I think. I think we're at a turning point there.
1: Before we go, maybe if you can let people know where to find you and also maybe another plug for the book
2: i tweet um earnestly and and grouchy at (laughs) politicultura which is p-o-l-i-t-i-c-u-l-t-u-r-a politicultura um you can find me at burn it all down and the book is football later a history of women and sport in latin america
1: brilliant brenda thanks for joining us
2: thanks for having me
0: should we get going We shall get going. Um, But before we get going, I would love to thank the audience for tuning in again. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening, sharing, subscribing. You can find us on all social media handles at RabonaMag, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. But Ryan, you've got something to
1: say. Yeah, also, just a little reminder, if you do check the podcast, please give us a review or a rating, especially on iTunes, or anywhere you can review or rate. It really helps, um, kind of, maybe push us up into other people's feeds
0: in Moose's words, tell a friend, tell an enemy exactly, especially an enemy (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for joining us once again and we'll catch you soon